Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, digital speedsters. All of you fast-tracking your way to the 22nd century. It's time to slow down now and cool your jets, ease off the throttle and kick back and let Matthew Dickerson take control of the next 45 minutes. Welcome to Tech Talk, folks. If you're into brain food, then you've chosen well. Assume your favourite meditation position while I welcome our resident technologist. Hello, Matthew Dickerson. What's been distracting you this week? Cars and cameras have been my focus this week. Not my focus, but I've been playing around with them, specifically around parking fines. Not not cars in cameras or... No, cars uh, with cameras added to them yeah. and just checking number plates for parking. So I got the chance this week to sit in a car that goes along and reads number plates along a street where you've got various parking zones, one hour, two hour, that sort of thing. And it reads those various number plates. And then as the parking officers drive around to various spots, they drive back around in a loop, obviously, and come back, say, an hour and five minutes later and just keeps reading those various number plates and bing, 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 as the number plates have been there for (laughs) longer than an hour or a two-hour time zone or whatever that time zone might be. So the technology I was pretty impressed with, it literally was a camera mounted to the side of the car and a phone that that information plugged into and some bit of processing. There was a, a device that had some processing power inside it. And the number plate recognition as you went past number plates that were at different angles, parallel parking, angle parking, some different configurations of cars, number plates down low, number plates up high, on the backs of utes or vehicles or vans. It seemed it's all be, over it. It seemed to be pretty good. I obviously didn't check every single number plate that it read as it went, but as it went along, I was looking at number plates, I'd look at the screen, look at the number plate, look at the screen, and I was getting them all pretty right. But what it gave you as well was a self-assessment. It had a little percentage figure that said how confident it was that it had read the number plate correctly. So it would go along and say 95, 92, 98, 95, 80. Oh, let's check that one. Oh, no, that one looked okay. So it actually gave its own assessment as to how confident it was with the number plate read. (sighs) And then if anyone questions it later on, of course, there's a photo taken of your car and a date date time stamp so that you know that, yes, I was there at that time and then an hour later I'm still there. But it also used a bit of AI and a whole range of images it's already got to try and identify the type of vehicle. Now, I started thinking about why, and I think just because. (laughs) I don't don't think you need to know the type of vehicle when you issue a fine, but it actually would go along and try and identify from the picture it took of the vehicle what type of vehicle it had. And so most of the time it was pretty well right, it'd go along, but my Ionic, my Hyundai Ionic, for example, it thought it was a Volkswagen T-Roc. But Uh interestingly enough, it also does a self-assessment on that. And when it had the Volkswagen T-Roc there, which was obviously wrong, it had a percentage figure of 10%. So it was only 10% confident that it had that one right. Obviously, it wasn't right, and that's why it was such a low percentage figure. So I've got a couple of questions here. They don't publish the type of car, do they? So if they get your car wrong, you can't go in and say, oh, sorry, it's not my car. Because <laughs> it might be a good little uh, <laughs> loophole there, but no, they don't. They normally just issue the it's fine just... based on the number plate. So. And, and tell me, the other question I have is now the parking policeman never has to hop out of the car so they can't get abused by the people walking along the street. Is that right? Well, they still do have to. And this is one thing, as we move ahead with technology, you have other issues. If you've got a disability parking sticker, for example, or or it's not actually a sticker, a permit, 
you'll put that on the dash of your car as you park, say, for example, nose in. Mm. And the parking officer can walk along and they and mark the tyre yeah. and, oh, park nose in, it's in the front of the car, no problems. But when they drive along the street, when they're seeing the backs of the yeah. car, if they actually say that person, so the little ding goes off, that person's been there for too long, they've then got to stop the car their parking car right. and then get out and have a look at the front of the car to make sure it doesn't have a disabled sticker before they then issue the fine. So they still have to get out, so they've still got every opportunity to be abused by someone they saying, no, no, still, I was just... still need them. incredibly thick skin. They do, exactly right. So yeah. anyway, it's quite fascinating, the technology. I was quite impressed with it. And again, I just think as you go forward, the different ways that things will happen. So maybe those disability stickers become something that gets stuck on a number plate, for example. They're not necessarily attached to a car, though, so that's a bit of an issue, but maybe those things will change as we move forward with the technology. If you're a parking officer out there, don't be worried about your job. I think the idea is that it's not so much that you'll replace it with an autonomous car going along and doing it, but it'll mean that you'll be able to cover more cars. So mm. if you're going to park illegally, be on the lookout, I think, is the message there. Yeah, be careful, folks. All right, we better get cracking with episode number 101, folks. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this first story, though. Part of me feels a sense of satisfaction that the right people have copped a well-deserved well slap in the chops from the beast of their own making. But then I think the bad news is that there's no real happy ending to this story. The beast is loose. And there is no one to tame it. I'm talking about Google's AI chatbot Bard. And it's made a mistake that's cost its puppeteer several weeks' worth of lunch money. Matt, give the people the good slash bad news. Gee, you have expensive lunch, don't you? $144 billion it wiped off yeah. the market capitalisation of Google. Now, we've talked about ChatGPT. Talking about biting the hand that feeds you. No, <laughs> So so we, we've talked about JetGPT and we've talked about the fact that Microsoft, their big move there is to move that into Microsoft Bing. So as your preferred search engine, that old-fashioned concept of typing in something you want to search for and then getting a number of sites to come up and then you click on each of those and get the information you want. Ah, oh, that's just so yesterday. <laughs> so Microsoft... Too many, too many finger injuries from all that <laughs> Exactly right. Microsoft, with their experimentation they've been doing with OpenAI and ChatGPT, it's all good fun and I've been playing with it and using it for different things and I find it quite fascinating and you get some answers. Sometimes you think, hmm, doesn't sound quite right, but sometimes you get a summary of information you go, wow, that saved me going through four or five sites at least, uh, you know, two minutes worth of time it saved me there. But with Bing, they believe... Where you'll go with your searching will be, you won't expect to see a bunch of sites that will give you information when you look at them. You'll just have the answer after it goes and takes information from a range of sites. Google was caught with their pants down to a certain extent and said, well, we've been working on this for a long time, but we didn't think it was quite ready. But we've got Google Bard, so mm. we'll roll that out straight away. That's our direct competitor. And they actually created some ads with Google Bard, and they went forward to show how wonderful Google Bard was. But someone in the, do you want to just check this is okay department, just missed a little problem. Oh, no. One of the questions was, pretend I wanted to explain some information about the James Webb Telescope to my nine-year-old. So that was a question asked. Pretty in innocent question and something that would be right up the alley of uh, ChatGPT or some AI to put it together. And it came back with a quite sensible answer about the James Webb Telescope, except it said that it was the first telescope to take a picture of an exoplanet. And people that are in the know, 
people that are astronomers, maybe people that just have good general knowledge, went, no, that's not right. Back in 2004, there was a European space telescope that took photos of exoplanets or an exoplanet for the first time. And when they analysed it a bit further, Google Bard found that the James Webb Telescope took its first photo of an exoplanet. But it didn't quite get the interpretation right Uh. and gave the information out to say that it was the first telescope to take Uh. a photo of an exoplanet. So straight away, people went, ah. Google Bar is not very good. It gives you incorrect information. (laughs) And you can see how it was close. It was so close. (laughs) And you can see a nine-year-old getting that wrong, going, oh, Dad, do you know that it was the first one? Oh, it's not quite right, son. It was a different interpretation of that bit of information. So straight away on the back of that, the share price of Alphabet, the parent company. Just on the strength of that. On the strength of that, it dropped dramatically. As I said, $144 billion, 7.7% was wiped off its share market value. On the flip side of that, Microsoft's share price went up by about 0.5%. So (sighs) people didn't transfer all their confidence across to Microsoft. They just said, "Mm, lack of confidence there in Google. So it's quite interesting. Now, we've talked before about Google, 93.9 or 94%, let's call it, market share. Now, when they do that, and when Microsoft Bing, if it seems to work quite effectively, suddenly that 94% market share might be at risk from Google, which you wouldn't have thought just a month ago. Imagine, you'd think I was crazy if I said that 94% market share, their market dominance is being questioned, but now we're going, oh, this Microsoft Bing, maybe it's going to actually make some inroads into that Google market share. So it's a fascinating spot at the moment. I just don't know where it's going to end up, but it's exciting to be watching on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, seeing how these things go when they trip up too. Oh, wow. Tradies and weekend warriors alike, it's time to lean in and find out all about Australia's first electric ute. It's on its way now, and Matt, the specs are competitive. They are competitive, and there's a little bit of criticism around there for it, and I, I suppose unfair criticism. And I'm not sure how many times we can mention it, but it was, of course, that famous line about the electric ute will wreck your weekend from our former <laughs> Prime Minister as part of an election campaign. But it wasn't actually that long ago. It was only about six months ago that the deputy leader of the Liberal Party made another statement saying, no one in the world is making an electric ute, by the way, and even if they were, it would be unaffordable. And that was proven to be fairly incorrect, given the yeah. fact that across the world, the F-150 Lightning, for example, in America is it, going like just, gangbusters. So, yeah, there's yeah. a bunch of them. Uh, and also, she went on further to say, it's not going to tow your trailer, it's not going to tow your boat, it's not going... Uh, sorry, no, that was the leader of the Liberal Party back mm. when in the election campaign. Not going to tow your trailer, it's not going to tow your boat, it's not going to get you out to your favourite camping spot with your family, and it will end the weekend for Australians who love being out there in their four-wheel drives. Well, of course, that was all a bit silly, but what we've got now is finally on the market in Australia a ute. And there has been a lack of an electric ute in Australia, partly because the government has made silly statements like that. Some Mm. companies across the world have said, well, we're not going to take our vehicles to Australia. We'll go to markets where they want it there, um, like the F-150 in America. But LDV has come out with the first ute in Australia. Now, it doesn't look too bad in terms of specs. You're quite right. It's got a range of 330 kilometres. So some people might say, well, that's not quite enough to be able to get me from one town to another and do my work that I need to do. But for tradies, a lot of the work they're doing is probably 
in one town, in one area, and going to the job site and going to pick up supplies maybe and coming back to the job site. And they might be doing 10, 15, 20-kilometre trips on that regular basis. Mm. They might have a job a long way away away, but they're probably not going back and forth every day to that job. They're probably going to that in one hit and then being around that town. But for tradies in metro areas in Sydney and Melbourne, that type of thing, I just think this is such an obvious thing. You're probably not doing more than 330 kilometres in a day if you're in Sydney as a tradie. Mm. You're probably just getting to that job site and, let's say, back and forth around those small trips. So I don't think that's the end of the world in terms of that range. Uh, again, it's got that ability to plug in tools. I just love that idea there. You turn up at your job site and don't worry about finding some builder's power. You just plug into your ute and charge up. Sure, that takes away some of your battery power, but, gee, we're not talking about much there. To charge up mm. some of your rechargeable tools, it's not a huge amount there. The thing it's been criticised the most for has been its price. It's about $90,000. So at first reflection or at first instance, you think, gee, that does sound expensive. But then when you start to look at running costs, a lot of the utes that are out there now that are popular, the Hilux, obviously, the Toyota Hilux, very popular, Ford Range are very popular. Some of those you would spend about $25 per 100 kilometres, depending on how you drive and the petrol price, etc. That's fairly expensive to drive. When you've got something like this ute, you might pay about $2 per 100 kilometres. Mm. So you start to rack up 15,000, 20,000 kilometres a year, starts to get to a fairly significant difference in price. And keep in mind, it's not totally unusual for people to spend 100 grand on a ute, 200 grand you could spend on one of those big Ram utes if you're mm. that way inclined. But even the base model Hiluxes, Ford Rangers, they're 50 to 70 grand. So 90 grand does sound expensive, but if it's only 20 grand more than what you'd normally pay, but you're paying $2 per 100 kilometres compared to $25. In the long run, it definitely changes the story, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So this has got a payload capacity of 1,150 kilograms, so obviously you can put a fair bit of stuff on the back of it. It can tow, obviously. You want to be able to tow your trailer. Maybe you've got tools, that sort of thing, on a trailer. So all those things there, I think it covers those off. The really interesting part will be... As we go down the track, if this starts to sell well, then other manufacturers around the world will go, Yeah, okay. that, that's what I was thinking. It's the yeah. start. The seal's been broken. Correct. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. So I think one of the things that we're seeing now is TransGrid has already signed a deal and they were part of the launch of this first electric ute. So TransGrid are going to use them as their field vehicles. And again, it'll be rolled out there in the field. People will see them. They'll go, oh, hold on, they've got a ute there. How can I get one of those? They're in short supply at the moment. But again, I think that's only going to be a matter of supply, time, demand, all the rest of it. I also know a lot of people who have a ute, not because they necessarily need a ute a lot, they just like to have the option to have that carrying capacity. They just It's a town car with a bit of carrying capacity. So, yeah. yeah. yeah that's right. How many times have you loaded up the back of that with some concrete supplies and gone yeah. and done a job? Oh, I don't want to put dirty stuff on the back of my ute. I want to keep it nice and clean. But they are convenient sometimes yeah. when you ring your parents and say, help me move house from one place to another, that sort of thing, where yeah, yeah. parents go, why well, have I got a ute now? So <laughs> I think that's right. I think the point you make is that the seal's been broken. We are on the way. Utes will be a common thing, and it makes a lot of sense for those tradies. Now, I don't know about you folks, but whenever I'm required to complete a survey asking for my opinion, no matter how mundane or insignificant the topic, I always overthink it and I'm never happy with my own responses. I just can't trust my own opinion, folks. And when it comes to a beer, I pretty much like them all. 
I think, but I'm not sure. I'll have to keep trying. <laughs> Thankfully, some Japanese scientists don't trust anyone's opinion on their taste for beer, so they've developed a test to measure your facial expression after you sip. Matt, this is scientific objectivity at its best. <laughs> well, the problem is, as an 18-year-old, you might go to a craft brewer and say, oh, I better try every beer to find out which one that I like. So there's a legitimate reason to have 20 beers in the yeah, night. That's right. Not that we're encouraging excessive alcoholic consumption, of course. But this is the thing. You do go to some craft brewers sometimes and you go, wow, there's so many different easier. I wonder which one I'd like. And you start to talk to the brewer there or the person behind the bar and they give you all these various expressions about how they might describe the beer. It's a bit woody or it's a a bit dry. And you Mm. think, well, how does dry make sense with a beer that's liquid? I I don't understand. So you have to just try them. And then you buy a a midi or a schooner and you feel like you've got to finish that whole one and get the taste (laughs) of it. So that's obviously been a problem. This is really a first world problem we've got to address here. And so some Japanese scientists have identified all of that and they said just by sampling a few beers, they put four little samples and not a full beer, you don't have to go and drink four full beers, just by sampling those four little sample parts and then a computer or sorry, a, a camera focused on your face reading your facial expressions, put that into an AI background, and then it will say... A lot of self-consciousness going on here. Oh, that's right. And and can you mask that? Can you say, I'm going to trick this AI here. I'm going to smile at the one I really don't like. I mean, I don't know if our facial expressions can hide what we're really feeling or whether the AI is clever enough to see through our potential to try and mask our expression and then give us the correct answer I anyway. think it'd be great to try on some old beer ads from the 80s and stuff, you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, the KB or the, the VB and, and whether you've got the actors taking a sip of the beer and the look on their face. Are they really enjoying it That's or right. is it all put on? Or is it really beer there? Someone said, I hate this beer, just give me some brown water, put a bit of froth on top and I'll smile away there being paid for this ad. So it is quite fascinating. But I think what's happening now as AI is getting better, some people, researchers, scientists, are coming up with different projects. What else can we do with this? With all this processing power, with all this AI we're getting access to, what else can we do? And I'm sure a few people sitting around at a pub one day went, I'm going to try that new beer. I don't like that that much. And someone said, aha, that's what we can do with AI. (laughs) We can work out whether or not you're going to like a beer or not. So it does seem like creating technology for the sake of creating technology. But I can see craft brewers saying, we want this technology in our brewery because it gives them a competitive advantage over other breweries. But also, we hate to see someone having that media nanny drinking the first top of it and going, I don't really Mm. like that one. I'll I'll sit that aside and they feel like they're wasting that beer and someone's not enjoying their beer. I'm sure brewers would love to have people enjoying every beer they sell. So why not do a quick test? When you walk in, I think it would be a huge marketing initiative. Walk in here, try these four little samples and we'll get the best beer for you, sir. There you go. uh, I think that would be fantastic. We'll find the one that's right for you. But uh, so far it's only for beer face. Um, (laughs) We're we're waiting for it to come out for other things too, I guess. You're talking about wine face, spirits face. Well, you know, any sort of situation. (laughs) My brain's ticking over right now. Now, as we hurtle headlong into an energy crisis that may just define this decade, The two big challenges are, A, how can we supply enough energy for all our needs? And B, how can we reduce our needs so we have enough energy for all? Data centres are a very hungry drain on the supply, folks. So, Matt, could we be about to see a major social responsibility exercised by these enterprises? 
just to give you an idea of how big a problem this is, and I didn't realise how big a problem it was, but... I don't think anyone would. No, but in Ireland, for example, where you've got a fair few data centres located, they estimate that by the year 2029, data centres in Ireland will soak up 27% of the national grid. That's yeah, just from data centres. So when people think about the cloud and they think, isn't it wonderful, we're just storing our data in the cloud, we don't need servers on our site anymore, we're just putting the data in the cloud, it's somewhere out there, it just sounds wonderful. Well, the cloud is taking up a lot of power across all these data centres across the world. Now, it's interesting because I remember maybe a decade or so ago, I saw servers that we were selling to our customers at the time were starting to come out with a real focus on the power consumption. In the past, it used to be how many processes or the speed of those processes or how much RAM, hard drive capacity, all sorts of things. But one of the main features they were coming out with was the amount of power that was being consumed. And I actually thought at the time, oh, people don't really care about that. They just plug it in. It's mm. all fine. But then you start to think... That was when electricity was a lot cheaper. <laughs> well, electricity cheaper. And also, there probably wasn't the same focus on the climate, and maybe it was more than 10 years ago, maybe it was 15 years ago, but not the same focus on the climate at the time. But then you start to think about it in data centres. Typically, you've got racks that have got 42 servers per rack. And so if you've got a server that uses 100 watts less power, and then you put 42 of them in a rack, you go, well, there's 42 times 100 less power. Mm. And then you think about that row of racks that as far as the eye can see almost in a data centre, multiply that out, you go... Yeah, wow, that's probably pretty important. So mm. maybe the manufacturers were way ahead of where I was thinking at the time in terms of that data use. But then you start to look at how can you reduce that? Because obviously there's a whole range of different things at play here in terms of that data or that power consumption. So it's interesting because they're having such an impact on the grid, a terrible admission by some data centres is that they've got their backup generators. So typically a data centre has got a bunch of batteries there so that if there's some short drops in power, you've got batteries to fill in that. If there's a complete blackout, batteries fill in. But they've also got backup generators. And so those backup generators are sitting there and they're waiting to kick in. And typically, when I've been to data centres, the backup generators are diesel backup generators, Mm. but they run them maybe once a week just to make sure everything's going. And also, they'll probably refuel them so that they might use up some of that fuel. But diesel sitting there for a long period of time, then when you need it, suddenly mightn't have the capacity to work the way it should work. So they're obviously having to use that that diesel up over time. But uh, what they're doing now is they're actually monitoring the grid. And when the demand on the grid from normal consumers is quite high, these backup generators are kicking in to supply the power to take weight off the grid, which sounds terrible because you've got Mm. these wonderful data centres and you hope they're using nice green power, but they're chewing up this dirty diesel while they're just doing their normal operation. So that's one way they're trying to interact with the grid. Now, they'll obviously get to the point where they'll interact with the grid in a smarter way where they'll probably start to use batteries or other power sources rather than having these diesel generators. But actually having the fact that they're monitoring the power usage on the grid while they're actually using their own power is a really important part of it. One of the other things that's happening is that the actual servers themselves are being a bit smarter and the way they're using their power, not just for spinning hard drives, a lot of them have got solid state drives now, so less power consumption, but even just the number of cycles they're using on their processes. So when the demand is lower from users actually using the cloud, these servers are getting smart enough that they're actually reducing their power consumption almost, not quite, but almost into a lower power state 
while the demand isn't quite as high. That's so clever. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Wow. So so this is the sort of thing, we don't think about it much, but this is the sort of thing that manufacturers are having to do to try and get to the stage where part of the claims they'll be able to make is we've got lower power consumption servers and our data centre is a lower power consumption data centre. Now that's all well and good, but you want to make sure that when you need the server, when you're going to buy your tickets on your ticket booking site and there's huge demand because it starts at 9 o'clock in the morning, you want to make sure those servers can ramp up as well. So we want to reduce the power consumption, but when we want the power, we want the power there as well. So it's a pretty tricky scenario for data centres to manage all of that, manage all of that across thousands of servers and try and deliver the most efficient outcome. So it's a problem but a problem that people are working on, hopefully, to get a good solution for us overall. The list of things that aren't electric just got one item shorter, folks, but this one's a big one. The Angel Island Ferry has done a regular run several times a day, in fact, across the San Francisco Bay for many, many years. But now it does it effortlessly and blissfully silently all under the impetus of sweet electricery. Matt, if they can do it in Sand Crab's disco, surely they can do it for the ferries of the Sydney Harbour. Oh, no, we're a long way from that, James. You <laughs> jest, I'm sure you jest. <laughs> so this is in San Francisco Bay, and this is a regular ferry run, and it makes so much sense for some of those trips that are relatively short, back and forth. We've talked about ships taking goods across the, the world, across the open seas, we're a long way away from getting electric there, and I think it'll probably go hydrogen before it goes electric. But for these short runs, and let's face it, you might have a short run, and then it might sit there for a period of time with passengers getting on and off. So you've got the opportunity to recharge on a regular basis. It might not put a mm. full charge back in, but just to top up the charge, it might sit there at the dock for 20 minutes, put 20 minutes with the charge back in. Off it goes in that short trip, charge up again on the other side. Well, I was looking at their timetable. It's like two hours between each one, so you can get quite a bit of charge oh, in a couple of hours. Go. There you go. You've done very well looking at the timetable there. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the sort of thing. I was thing. interested. Well, but it makes <laughs> so much sense. You, <laughs> you might have a short run with that ferry, but then again, as you said, if it sits there for an hour, an hour and a half before the next ferry run, easily you get that charge back in there. And I just think it's the lovely way of getting to work. People often talk about the Manly Ferry. You know, I commute across mm. on the Manly Ferry to get to work each day. It's wonderful sitting out there in the harbour while you're listening to the diesel engines chug away and spit out the fumes out the back. But imagine doing that with an electric ferry. I just think that would be a really nice way yeah. to get to work when you're sitting in that beautiful electric ferry. Much less noise. Saw the noise of the ocean there, slapping against the, the side of the hull. But you've just got that outlook where you're going, wow, this is all so silent. So that's happening in at the moment, obviously, in the US. In Canada, you've got some of British Columbia's ferry service that has start doing, they've got a, a battery hybrid there. So they've actually still got engines in there, but that's generating some power to run the battery. So they can run on batteries for a period of time, but they're worried about range anxiety on a ferry. Don't be halfway across the bay and go, whoops, sorry folks, we'll just float (laughs) here for a while. So they've got a hybrid, which again is still okay. It's it's that stepping stone, I think. So you've got that stepping stone there. But I just think we'll see more and more of these. It's not just about those greenhouse gas emissions, but I think people will start to demand it because of that better ride they'll have on there. So Mm. we're moving that way. These people that think you're not going to get some device of yours, a car, a ferry, a Mm. bus, 
if you think you're not going to have something that's going to be running on electric, if people that still poo-poo the whole idea of electric, you probably just sit at home sometime because you're going to probably get in some electric device somewhere at some stage in the fairly near future. It's really starting to happen. Now, here's something that caught me by surprise. I figured that universities were places where innovation is fairly common and any new idea, any new way of doing things, if they were operational in society, then they were definitely already a bit old hat in uh, in university campuses. But I'm dumbfounded that Monash Uni has become the first in the country, that's the first in our country, with digital student IDs. It seems so simple, which means that everywhere else they are still lugging around those plastic cards, those heavy plastic cards that take up space in a wallet. Matt, what's that about? What's a wallet? <laughs> Taking up space in a wallet? Who carried, who carried a wallet? Remember back in the old days where you used to have a wallet? Surely you had a wallet. <laughs> I did have a wallet yeah, at one stage, yes, indeed. <laughs> but I was a bit the same as you. I thought, really? The first university, Monash University, the first in the nation to go to digital IDs. Now, I understand that maybe they were thinking we've got to be accessible for all of our students and maybe not every student has a smartphone so if we go to a digital id then that will make it hard for those students that don't have a smartphone obviously but but surely you could have a bit of both surely you could have a hybrid yeah that's right but again there are so many things when you're at university that you need your student card for Mm. and so putting that onto your phone because that's sometimes all students carry now that's sometimes all i carry is a phone Mm. so having that all in there in that one device makes so much sense so now you can go and get into the gym or get access to the library or do your photocopying and pay for that and have that against your student card or your student record. All that just makes so much more sense. They've done it sensibly, so you can use it with your Apple wallet or your Google wallet. So it's just sensible. And things like your driver's license, if the New South Wales government has been able to do driver's license for years, which we've been doing for a while now, then you'd think that universities would do it as well. But I'm with you. I think exactly as you said, it'll get to that point now where other universities, and I know my youngest daughter at university, she's got a bit of a problem, it is a first world problem, that (laughs) she's got her smartphone and it's wireless charging, but she has to have some student ID on there. So she's got the little thing stuck on the back of the phone, which you stick your student ID into, but of course that means your wireless charging doesn't work because you've got something stuck on the back of your yeah, phone, but she yeah. doesn't have a wallet, so that's a bit of a problem for her. So now when she does wireless charging, she's got to take a phone out of the case, which I guarantee is the time she'll drop it and break the phone. So <laughs> there are these sort of first world problems we've got to address, but I'm sure she would love the idea so she can get that stupid thing off the back of her phone mm-hmm. and just have her ID in the actual phone itself. So it makes sense. I think more and more we're going to see, I know with one of my businesses, we don't have any device, any physical device you need to get into the various uh, rooms or the cupboards that you need to get access to. It's all on their phone and that's a technology business. You'd expect that to be the case. But more and more we'll see various organisations moving this way because it's just getting so much easier. But it's also getting more organisations, more companies are creating the tools to be able to do this. If you're going to create a security locking system now, it would be crazy for you to say the only way you can access it is with a card. You'd be saying, no, no, we've got to have electronic means, maybe a card as well, but a card is the only method? Hmm, Sounds a bit yesterday, doesn't it? So (laughs) it's moving ahead quite quickly, but it also makes it so convenient. Might as well go back to the old skeleton keys and the the heavy lock. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, But anyway, look, it is moving ahead. 
physical cards. We'll joke about it with our, maybe not our kids, but our grandkids. The old days, we used to have to carry different cards around for different things, whereas now it's all just on that one device, that Mm -hmm. one smartphone. Well, folks, if we're set to get EV utes in Australia, it makes perfect sense to me that the mining sector would want in on this. Toyota has been fairly stoic in avoiding the rush to develop EV models, but in an interesting twist, a billion-dollar deal has been cut by SEA Electric to convert a bunch of Hilux and Land Cruiser utes into EVs for the mining sector here in Australia. Matt, this could be the start of a new trend. I actually find it somewhat ironic. You've heard me talk about Toyota before, and I've been a little bit critical of how slow they've been to the game with EVs. I think they've even come out and said, we're not going to do an electric model. Well, they've they've actually got one now, but it's uh, one model in the whole range. I think it's just so they can say we've got one there. But they're backing hydrogen i think they're only saying that Mm. because they've been so far behind in the ev game Mm. so that's kind of the toyota loyals out there oh we're going to solve the problem with hydrogen it's all okay keep buying your your hybrids now i had one person trying to tell me but they've got hybrid so that's electric and i said no it's it's hybrid (laughs) no 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 but that means it's electric no they're hybrid that's right and i think they're toyota's trying to confuse the market a little bit with they that are. as well. Absolutely, they are. But I, so when I found this information and, and went through the data on this one, I thought it is ironic that Toyota's about to sell maybe another 8,500 of their vehicles for the engine to be pulled out of them on delivery. And as you said, SEA Electric will then put an electric motor in fill it with batteries and say to the mining industry, there you go, there's the electric ute that you wanted because there's not enough other electric utes. So they're going to have all these uh, internal combustion engines just (laughs) sitting on a pile... So going if you, cheap, folks. That's right. If you've got an old Land Cruiser Hilux, Hilux and your, your engine's down a few hundred thousand kilometres, you need to replace the engine. You need well, to get in touch with your local mining group. That's right. Yeah. And someone did say to me, wouldn't it make more sense if they said to Toyota, can you just supply all those vehicles without the motor sink very much? And I went, yeah, that's fine. But then that would almost be an admission by Toyota that maybe these internal combustion engines aren't needed anymore. So mm. anyway, so what I do like about this is that the mining industry does get a hard time from a range of people about the terrible things that it does to the environment. Now, there's a, a trade-off here. We all use products that come from mines every day. Even if you're staunch against mining, you're probably using mining products every day in your life. Mm. So it's a bit hypocritical to just be, say, dismiss all mines and we should stop all mining. We do need mining to live in the way we live in our modern society. But yes, it's good if we can work on miners, the mining companies, to be a little bit more responsible in what they're doing. So they've got plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They've got plans to be better citizens, if you like, uh, citizens for environmental citizens. So they've got plans for that. And this is one of those plans. So this is a deal that's been done for 8,500 vehicles over the next five years. That's the initial order, the initial supply. But again, it might be more than that as the success goes forward. And one of the things I think will be really obvious to the mining companies once they start using these electric vehicles is that electric vehicles are perfect in the mining industry. Mm. I remember going to a mining site one day when we were doing some work on a mining site and I jumped in one of the vehicles. It was a Toyota Land Cruiser Ute, but I jumped in that and I saw a little plate welded on the gear stick and I couldn't quite work out what it was. So I said to the, to the guy driving, what's that? And he said, that's to stop us going past second gear. We've got speed limits in the mining site. We don't need anything past second gear. Really? Yeah, because obviously you're driving around a mine site, so you want to keep the speed down. But what I found very quickly after we started driving was 
because what they do is they just rev the guts out of it <laughs> <laughs> in second gear. They probably needed to go to third and fourth gear, so they're going as fast as they possibly can in second gear. So when we you still look hear at them coming, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> <laughs> when you see these vehicles on a mining site, that sometimes they just park them underground after they've used them for a certain amount of kilometres, or sometimes they'll sell them off, but they don't have a lot of kilometres on them. But then you realise it's only gone into second gear, for example. The kilometres on the odometer don't really reflect the life oh, that the yeah, engines the had engines compared to someone... flogging. Yeah, that's right, that would normally drive it. But what you're doing on a mine site is you're not going that fast. So mm. we know that the greatest impediment to range on a vehicle, any vehicle, but in particular electric vehicle, is speed. As you double your speed, you quadruple your air resistance. Mm. When you're driving around a mining site, if you're only doing 20, 30 kilometres an hour all the time, that's perfect. That's right up the alley for an electric vehicle. All that talk from zero, then that's absolutely right up the alley for that as well. So it makes a lot of sense to have an electric vehicle on a mining site. But obviously, the problem we talked about earlier in the show, where you can't get enough electric vehicles here in Australia, the mining industry said, well, we'll fix the problem ourselves. You can't get them. We'll go and get someone to go and basically convert a whole bunch of them over and we'll have electric vehicles on our mine sites. So it makes sense. And I love the fact they're doing that. And again, when you see manufacturers around the world saying, what? Eight and a half thousand just got converted. Well, we might put some electric utes into the industry in Australia and we'll go and sell those electric utes rather than get Toyotas, rip engines out and then put electric motors in there. So it is an indication of where we're headed. And again, I, I think it's just an obvious path that we're heading down that it's pretty much unstoppable now. With snail mail on the downsizing around the world, uh, with you know, as far as modern communication goes, there's a whole lot of mail trucks in the US that are trying to justify their existence by being useful in other ways. Matt, what creativity has the USPS come up to to, um, to stay up with the game? Well, I don't think they've been creative at all. I think they've stolen the idea from Australia because we talked about this idea from Australia Post months ago where Australia Post was going to actually put some devices on their vehicles that are going all over the towns and cities of Australia to track mobile phone signals as they drove around. And so that was a great idea. That's in operation now. So, folks, we just need to clarify, not to listen in on calls, but just to track (laughs) the signals that Uh, are going. No, no, to listen (laughs) to calls as well, maybe. (laughs) No, to track the signal, to track the mobile phone signal as you go around. And that's exactly what's about to happen now with the US Postal Service. They're doing some deals with some companies, with the AT&T, T-Mobiles, Verizon, etc., to actually have accurate tracking of the signal as you go around in America. So it's almost an identical carbon copy of what's happening here in Australia with those carriers there because, again, the competitive landscape in America means that you've really got to look at some different maps there to find out which one of the carriers is going to be best in that particular area. And I remember years ago we went to America, I had to go to America for some conferences, and I actually ended up carrying three phones with me. I had my Australian phone, which I had on roaming, and then I found out that a couple of places I was going to go to, one particular carrier had good service there, and they were using a CDMA service, and another carrier had good service in their particular area, they were using a different type of signal, so I had to actually carry three phones with me. Three phones, you're running out of pockets there. (laughs) 
That's exactly right. It was clumsy. It was silly. <laughs> now, that was, again, I'm going back some time ago now, but it did seem to be that the various carriers really were, this is my patch, I'll go and work on my right. top of signal in my area. So getting the US Postal Service on board to say, let's just map this out. So if you're going to a certain area, you can work out the type of signal that you're going to need or the type of phone or the carrier you're going to need there. I think it's a great idea. I think it's going to work well in Australia. I think it'll work well in the US. I wouldn't be surprised to see lots of people around the world, while we're still having all these parcels delivered, get out there and actually just track that signal around there. The other part that's important is not just the signal, but the data speed. So it's all well and good to look at your phone and go, mm. oh, I've got three bars here. This is great. But if everyone's using that signal there in your area, you might only get slow download Slows speeds. Everything. So doing some testing as they go around to test those download speeds, I think is important as well. Okay, folks, we've got a scam story here, but it's one with a difference. The NAB, our National Australia Bank, is fighting back against scammers. Someone's been a bit clever at the IT desk there at the National Australia Bank. Matt, it's about time. What's going on to make life difficult for the scammers? We're familiar, or most people I think are familiar with the idea of the do not call register. You can put your number on the do not call register here in Australia. Oh, can you put your name on a do not scam register? Is mm, that that'd be nice, <laughs> wouldn't it? That'd be very nice. Yeah, but no, they haven't come up with that one yet. Right, okay. But the do not call register, which some scams do come in on, the do not call register, you put your name on that, any legitimate company should have the do not call register there to show the numbers they shouldn't call and they won't call them. Unfortunately, there are some bad actors and some overseas companies that don't even know about the do not call register because they ignore that completely. The NAB has actually gone slightly differently in their approach to try and stop their clients being scammed and they've put some of the bank phone numbers on the do not originate list. So what that means is that if you're a, a carrier, so a Telstra, an Optus or a Vodafone, you then will say, I won't allow numbers to come from these, or calls, sorry, to come from these certain numbers to go and call customers. So it means if someone rings and says, hi, James, this is the bank here. Just to let you know your credit card looks like it's been scammed. Just give us some extra details and we'll get that transaction fixed up for you. Oh, who's this again? Oh, this is the National Australia Bank. No, it won't be because those calls won't come from the National Australia Bank, from the main numbers there. Now, there's a bit of inconvenience around this because obviously the National Australia Bank might want to ring people sometimes. The decision they've made is around the inconvenience to their customers of not having the calls come from the bank as opposed to the inconvenience to the customers about being scammed. Mm. They think the scamming is costing their customers too much, so they're making it a little bit harder for the bank to actually make contact with you. So there's a whole range of questions you have about this in terms of what numbers do they put on? Is it just head office numbers? Is it every local branch that they put on there? I don't actually know which numbers they're putting on there, but it's a different way of approaching it so that you won't ever get that call from a number that you recognise. And, and this issue is, yeah, going to have to, well, it requires some some creative solutions and good on them for having a go, I think. Yeah, that's right. So already they've seen, so they've got teams, the NAB's got teams working on this. They've seen a 50% reduction in spoofing cases and a 70% reduction in customer losses since they've gone to this do not originate oh, wow. list. So it's obviously working, but again, I'm sure there's some inconvenience has been introduced. Mm. So I'm keen to actually follow up on this in another couple of months' time to see how that's been because some customers might say it's a pain. I used to get phone calls from my bank to give me information, but I'm not getting those anymore. Mm. But again, it's that trade-off. 
all the losses that are occurring versus the idea that I just have that little bit harder way to communicate. Now, the way you communicate with your bank, I know my bank, I typically communicate with them via email. You've got to be careful though, because when that happens, sometimes if you get a man in the middle scam, that can be a problem as well. But mm. yeah, most of the communication I would have would be via email with my bank. Well, okay, so another problem has been created by this solution, but that's what humans do. We always find solutions or we try to find solutions to problems. So there'll be another way around it. There'll be another way around it. And then the scammers will work out a way to get around that. And then there'll be another <laughs> solution to the problem. Build <laughs> a bigger mousetrap. Mother Nature will build a bigger mouse. That's right. But we keep building better mousetraps. Can we just say, scammers, yeah. please stop. Just stop it. It's just consuming just so out. much mind power of so many people around the world to try and fix these problems. But Try to source your energy into niceness. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's the message for today. Scammers. <laughs> be nice <laughs> and that's all we have for you today folks I hate to say it but this is your cue to quit your lollygagging and get back to work thanks for another cracking tech talk Matt always my pleasure James always my pleasure now I've said it before and I'll say it again the excuses to avoid EVs are getting fewer and fewer and fewer they're zipping all around us in industry on the land and in the water so get on board folks now I wonder also if that Japanese face-reading technology could be used in meetings to gauge people's real thoughts when the boss drops a new plan on the table, now there's nowhere to hide there. Thank you for tuning in once again to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I've been your host, James Eddy, and it's always an absolute pleasure bringing you this weekly insight into a world that gets cleverer and cleverer by the day. Have a great week, and we'll catch you again very soon. Thank you.